Good evening, my name is Paul McCartney. And, uh, you know, all of us like for people to know our names, don't they? And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I hate is in fellowship and someone comes up and says, Do you remember my name? And uh, unfortunately, uh, well, I don't know. So, fortunately, you know, when you get to be over 70, you can say, Well, you know, certain things happen when you're 70. And you just don't remember as well. But, uh, you know, all of us, we like to be recognized, don't we? And I think that whole, that whole thing with Paul McCartney showed me, you know what, it doesn't matter how famous you are, you're only a few years away from nobody remembering your name and knowing who you are. And uh, really it sort of says, that, you know, that's not where it's at. You know, if the most famous music group in the world can be forgotten in a few years, what do you think is going to happen to us? And, uh, and really, that's, that's some of the things that I want to talk about with us tonight. Uh, Gloria sends her regrets of not being able to be here tonight. She would love to be here, but was not able to. I, I really want to put some prayer needs before you. Uh, there's a lot of things going on uh, in my life, I'm sure, like there are with, with you. But uh, some specific ones, uh, in fact, I was just on the phone with my son-in-law, uh, our oldest daughter, Stacy's husband, uh, is in the State Department, and Wednesday he leaves for Afghanistan for a year. And uh, so, uh, you know, if you put, kind of put that somewhere on your prayer list to be praying for him, uh, I would appreciate that a lot. Uh, and then uh, uh, Gloria and I leave for the Middle East early in the morning. And so please pray for us with that. Also, very, another special need that we have is uh, we found out a few weeks ago that our 10-year-old granddaughter, Aaliyah, uh, some of you know uh, Steve and Carrie Hiddleston, uh, their 10-year-old uh, granddaughter, their daughter in, in Phoenix was just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And uh, so, you know, that's a, a life change for her. Uh, of course, you think, well, you know, things could be a lot worse than that. But, uh, you know, her, she's not thinking about things could be a lot worse. She's thinking about why can't I just be a normal 10-year-old girl uh, without having to have four shots a day and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, we, we, we all go through our struggles and we all go through our trials. Uh, and, and part of that's what I want us to talk about tonight. Uh, some of you who are older remember a movie that was popular a few years ago called The Power of One. Uh, some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Uh, but The Power of One was from a, from a novel that was written about what was going on in South Africa uh, in the days of apartheid and all the terrible things that happened there, uh, but really was, was showing the power of what one person could do taking a stand. And uh, so tonight I'm going to do a sermon not on the power of one, but on the power of more than one. So uh, off we go. You know, one of the things that uh, you'll see as you get older, and you know what, I look at Joe Eats out here, he's getting older. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you start get, getting that age where your, your aches and pains don't heal quite as quickly. 
And uh, it's been said, and I think it's really true, getting old is not for sissies. But uh, what I want to say, you know, being a disciple is not for sissies. You're just not going to make it if you're a sissy. Because you have got somebody with a bullseye on your heart. And that someone is Satan. And I think we've got to understand, even before we get into our lesson, what really what we're up against. I mean, it, it, too many people make Christianity a self-help program. And you're never going to get there with a self-help program. Because if you don't understand that you're up against something much, much bigger than you, uh, you're, you're not going to you're not going to have a chance in, in, in sort of getting into to Reuben's lesson probably next week in, in Ephesians chapter six. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter five in the first part of six tonight. But it says, you know, our struggle is not against what? It's not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against demonic powers that are far more powerful than we are. We're up against Satan himself, who is doing everything he can to reclaim us, to take us back into the darkness where we all came from. And you've got to remember, and you've got to study some, how does Satan work? And Jesus tells us a lot about Satan. He says, in, in chapter 6 of John, he says, Satan is the father of lies. And so guess what Satan mainly does to us? He tries to lie to us. He tries to trick us. He tries to deceive us. He tries to to get us to put our values in the wrong place. What he tries to do is to get our focus on me. If he can get me to thinking about me, if he can get me to thinking about what pleases me, what makes me happy, what fulfills me, all those kind of things, you know what? He's got me. Now, that's not what the world says. But the world is deceived by Satan, and we cannot fall into the trap that Satan has for us. Even think about how Satan worked on Jesus and the temptations of Jesus. You know, three different temptations, and think about those three temptations. Maybe you never thought about it in this way, but think about all three of them. The first one, Jesus had not eaten in how long? Forty days. You think he might be hungry? All of you who are dieting? Forty days. So what's the first thing that Satan says? You know what? Jesus... You can make these stones into bread. Where was the appeal? To me? Jesus, take care of yourself. You're hungry. And then Jesus, of course, answers him with Scripture. But the next thing that Satan does is to take Jesus to a very high place and says, Jesus, I dare you to jump off. Because there is a promise that God will send His angels and take care of you. So just do it. I double-dog dare you to do this. 
What's he appealing to? The pride of Jesus. Show off, Jesus. Show your power to me. And then the most demonic of all temptations was the last one. Satan says, if you will bow down and worship me, Jesus, I will give you what you came to earth for. And I'll give it to you without suffering. If you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. They'll be yours. I'll give you the control. You don't even have to suffer. You don't have to do anything. Just bow down and worship me. You see how Satan worked on Jesus? Every one of those three temptations were focused on Jesus. Jesus, take care of yourself. Put yourself first. You're hungry. Feed yourself. Don't suffer. Don't take the hard way out. Take the easy way out. You've got to understand how Satan works in our life. Satan appeals to our selfishness. You know, it's interesting. Gloria and I, for a number of years, have worked with the newlywed group. And Reuben and Marina mentioned this. By the way, you guys are so fortunate to have Reuben and Marina here. But it, it become, we, we love working with that group. We get together once a month. They're in the group for the first year of marriage. And so we're trying to help them get a good start in that. But the thing that becomes absolutely obvious to all of us in that, in marriage, is that when you start living together 24-7, you know what you find out? You're incredibly selfish. Just how selfish we are. And that's how Satan appeals to us. He appeals to our selfishness. Think about the temptations in your life, and we're going to talk about those in a few moments. On the other hand, let's look at God. Satan's focus is me. God's focus is we. Think about it. I want you to turn over with me. Now, I hope that you notice I don't have PowerPoint tonight. Part of that's because I'm going to the Middle East tomorrow and I don't have time. <laughs> but the other part of it is, you know, I think every now and then it's good for us to have to open our Bibles and look up the verses yourself rather than have them up there. So would you hold up your Bibles or your smartphones if you're using your smartphone? All right. We're going to use it tonight. Turn over to Mark chapter 12. This is a passage, uh, or the parallel passage in, in Matthew, is a passage that I almost always try to include in a sermon because it is so absolutely important in, in setting our focus on being a Christian and what, what God wants for our lives. Okay, Mark chapter 12. We're going we're to start reading here in verse 28. Well, the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, I want you to notice and analyze what Jesus says here. He says, The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Bottom line, that is the heart of everything that Jesus taught. But what is the focus there? It's we. It's we. It's all about we. And you notice it's not what. Jesus didn't give any what there. He gave who. Who do you love? You love God first, and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's not about what. It's about who. You see, it's all about relationships. Turn over to John chapter 13. This is one that hopefully you memorized in the process of becoming a Christian. But, you know, it's good sometimes to go back and reread what we know by heart. You know, when, when say, someone said sometimes you need to go through and read all the verses in your Bible that you don't have underlined. John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, in one sense, this is a very surprising passage when you really understand what he's saying here. What he says is, people are not going to recognize you for what you teach about evolution. People are not going to recognize you as my disciples for what you preach about abortion. People are not going to recognize you even for what you teach about baptism. How are people going to recognize you? By your love for one another. You see, you can have all the doctrine on straight and totally miss it. If you miss the relationship, if you miss the power of more than one, you're going to miss it. Because that's what it's all about. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Okay, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be reading a number of passages here from Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 6. And I love the study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's such an encouraging book. It's so challenging, but it's so absolutely practical to where we live. But hopefully you'll, sit, you'll get some insights tonight that maybe you hadn't thought about. First of all, the relationship that we need to have is where? With God, right? That's the most important relationship that we've got to have is our relationship with God. Now, here's where a lot of people get messed up. In the world. Because a lot of people in the world think, I can have a relationship with God without having a relationship with His church. Right? But when you read and you study what the Bible says, you can't separate God and His church. Because the church is the body of Jesus Christ. How are you going to separate them? You can't say, I'm going to have a relationship with God. It's the church I can't stand. Or it's the church I don't want to be a part of. Or the church is full of hypocrites. Or whatever. We've got to understand it's all about the power of more than one. It's God and His church. Now, he says here in verse, chapter, uh, verse 3, 
He says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. Now get this. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You remember what the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is? Love the Lord your God and have no other gods before me because that is idolatry. This is what Paul is saying here. Number one, importance. He says, you know what? If you're into sexual immorality, if you're into impurity, and you're into greed, guess what you're guilty of? Idolatry. Now, why are you guilty of idolatry? Because you're putting something else before God. Now, sexual immorality. Think about it. What is the temptation of... Who do you try to please you when, you're, when you're in sexual immorality? Yourself, right? What about impurity? Impurity involves things like, you know, uh, lustful thoughts, internet pornography, masturbation, all those kind of things. Who are you trying to please when you're in impurity? Yourself. You know, and a lot of times we like to stop right there. We don't want this third one. Greed. I mean, we, we can feel pretty good about ourselves because I'm, I'm not guilty of sexual immorality and I'm, I'm not in, into impurity. But uh, let's don't talk a lot about greed. What is greed? Greed has to do with putting anything before God. It has to do with putting your money before God. It has to do with putting your time before God. And guess what? If you put it before God, it also means putting it before the church. And so I think that we've got to ask ourselves some very tough questions. Now we've got, for instance, we've got special contribution coming up here in June. And we talked about it last week, and Josue did a fantastic job. But how touched is your heart to sacrifice for special contribution? You know, last year we had almost a third of the people that gave nothing to special contribution. You think that there might be a chance that at least some of those people were guilty of greed? Now, I think there might have been some exceptions, but I think there was a lot of greed involved there. But you know what? All of us were involved with greed if we didn't give sacrificially. If we're not giving sacrificially to our weekly contribution, we are guilty of greed. Why? Because we're putting something before God. And I think we've got to continually examine ourselves on that. And you know, one of the things that we get very touchy about is talking about money. If we're talking about our own money. And yet we need to talk about it. Because I think that 
This is one of the ways that Satan really can get to all of us. Remember, he's trying to trick you. He's trying to deceive you. And I can be guilty of greed and not even know it. And that's the reason I need people in my, in my life. That's the reason I need to be open about something like, yes, my money. Let me ask you. Who knows, other than your wife or husband, who knows how much you give? Do you want no one to know? Why? Are you ashamed? Are you afraid of what people might think of you? Or whatever? You know what? We need the power of more than one in our life. Because Satan is a deceiver. Satan's out to trick us. And we can think, you know what? I'm doing just fine. I'm giving my tithe and I feel just fine about it. Thank you. Where in reality for you, you know what? Maybe you ought to be giving 20%, 30%, 40%. I don't know. But you know what is greed for you. Are you with me on that? But also, I think another way we can be deceived is on time. You know, it, it bothers me, for instance, when we decide we're going to have midweek services. How many people say, well, you know what? I'm just too tired. I've had a long day, or I have a long commute, or you know what? My kids have homework. You know what? All of those things may be true. But who are you thinking about? Are you thinking about me or we? Are you putting God first? And I think we've got to be careful about making excuses in our own minds about I'm tired or I work long or I have a long commute or my kids have a lot of homework or whatever. You know what? No excuses. The kingdom of God comes first. And I think that we do our kids a lot of harm by our examples if they don't see us putting God first and putting His kingdom first. Now, I could say a lot more about that, but i got more to say. He says here in verse 10, he says, And find out what pleases the Lord. You know what? I'm 71 years old. And I have not arrived at knowing what all pleases God. I'm still in a discovery mode, aren't you? Every one of us are in a discovery mode. We're continually trying to figure out what pleases God. Why? Because our life keeps changing. Our circumstances keep changing. And what pleases God in one situation may not... You know, what was sacrificed for me 20 years ago is not sacrifice anymore. My level of sacrifice for me has raised... We need to be examining always what pleases God. And again, my appeal is don't try to do it by yourself. Because if you think you're doing it by yourself, you're not because Satan's in there working on you. And when we try to do it by ourselves, it's, it's Satan and me working on it. And you know what the outcome is going to be on that one. Okay, secondly, relationship. We need a relationship with the lost. You know, that's, a, that's just a part of being a disciple. Let's read here in chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. It says, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light, 
For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it's said, Wake up, O sleeper! Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You know what? We have got an obligation to share what we have with others. I mean, I'm so happy and glad that we're putting a focus now on, on serving the poor. And the idea that, that hopefully all of us at least two hours every month are going to go and help the poor in some way. But how much more do we need to help those who are poor and blind and in the darkness to find the light? It says, you know what, we are children of light. We are in the light. We have found the light. Uh, you know, used to as a kid, and I don't know if the kids sing it anymore in, in Kids' Kingdom, but, uh, uh, and, and we taught our, our girls this, this, this song, This Little Light of Mine. You, you remember that song? How many of you know that song? I, I'm not going to lead it because I can't sing. But, but think, about the word, think about the words we're teaching our kids. It says, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine all the time. I'm going to let it shine. You know what? We need to sing that as adults, don't we? We need to encourage each other not just to sing it, but to practice it. Making the most of every opportunity that we have. Feeling that urgency. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to hold up one particular couple. Some of you know them, uh, the Sheikh and Afoma Ijuchuku. Who, who, know, who knows the Sheikh and Afoma? They're, they're such a great, great couple. But we were out with breakfast at breakfast with them in Santa Monica uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it, it, it was a cra- place was packed. And uh, we, we were sitting at a table, and the next table was probably two feet away from us. And uh, there were two distinguished-looking guys sitting at the next table. And so uh, we sit down at the table, and here's the sheikh. The sheikh immediately puts his hand out to the two guys and says, Hi, I am the sheikh. What's your name? And, uh, you know, they're a little bit taken back then. But they volunteer their name. And he says, you know, this is what I do, and this is who we are. And he introduces us. And he says, What do you do? You look like you're maybe in the movie business. They said, well, we are. <laughs> and uh, they, they make commercials. And so we, we start talking, and the, the sheikh has such a disarming you know, uh, demeanor, you can't get mad at the guy. And so we talk a little bit, and they, the, the waitress brings our food, and you won't believe what the sheikh does next. He holds his hands out to the guys and says, we're going to all pray together. Would you like to join us? 
And so here we are, six of us, holding hands together around the table, thanking for our food. But do you know how that conversation ended? We all ended up exchanging numbers and cards and email addresses and planning to get together again. You know what? I can't say that would have been my heart in that situation. But it was a certainly, you know, I, I decided, you know what? When I go out sharing from now, I'm going with the shake. <laughs> but, you know, he's just like this little kid here that sings a song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yeah. Not ashamed at all. Because he's got light that's going to shine on the darkness and it's going to expose the darkness without shame. What keeps us from doing it? Isn't it pride? Aren't we afraid of what people are going to think about us if we open our mouths? And yet, how many people pass us by every day that maybe are searching? That fear keeps us from being the contact point that God would like for us to be. So that's the relationship with the lost. Uh, I would do want to add this one thing, though, because uh, here in, 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 uh, in verse 14, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know what scholars say that probably is? They say it's probably an early baptism song. They said probably that was a song that was sung at people's baptism. Look at it from that context. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Isn't that a neat thought? And I am so disturbed. In this past week, I have have dealt with one situation myself and heard of two others where people decided that baptism is not essential for salvation. And I ask myself, how in the world can you read the Bible and ever come to that conclusion? I think we've got to become students of the Bible. We've got to believe the Bible. We've got to claim the power of the Bible. And you can't soften what God says to do, and you can't apologize for that. Again, I could preach on that one, but I won't. Then verse 19. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in His name and the name of the Lord Jesus, of Lord Jesus Christ. Our relationship with one another. We've talked about it a lot lately. We've talked about the need to get back in discipling relationships. We've talked about the need to be in one another's lives. And it, 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 Gloria and I do a lot of marriage counseling. Unfortunately, we do a lot of marriage counseling with disciples that ought to know better and ought to be doing better. And uh, by, by the power of God, they do better when they do the right thing. But, but anymore, we ask two questions when we first get with a couple. First question is, is tell me about your relationship with God every day and what answer do you think we get? Almost always, well, I haven't had quiet time in a couple of weeks or I haven't read my Bible lately, or I'm not very consistent, or whatever. The next question we ask, and we also know the answer to it already, is what couple is helping you regularly in your life, in your marriage? And it's always nobody. It's always nobody. Guys, that's just a setup for disaster. 
And I'm not just talking to you Marians. I'm talking to you singles and you campus students and you teens. We need people in our lives. Not just when I need help. You know, if I just go when I need help, I, I, when I'm deceived and I don't know I need help, what I do? I don't go for help. I need someone regularly in my, help, in my life that can help me and ask the tough questions. How, how, how's your struggle with lust going? How's your walk with God? How are you, how's your sharing your faith go? How, all those, I need that in my life. You know what? I'm 71 years old. I've been a Christian a lot of years. And it doesn't get any easier. And you don't ever get to the point that you don't need help. You don't ever get to the point in this lifetime you don't need people in your life. But you know what? There's the lie of Satan coming in. Well, you don't need that. Look how long, look how much Bible you know. Look, look what all you've done for God. Look at all this kind of stuff. You know what? You, you're, you can get by on your own. Lie of Satan. As soon as Satan gets you thinking that, you're toast. You're not going to make it. We need one another. Then verse 21, and this sets up the rest of the relationship things we're going to talk about here. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This needs to be a spirit that we have in the body with one another. We are in submission to one another. And uh, this is one of the things I think that has messed us up some in the past and has made something like authority a dirty word. Because we felt like, or we taught or practiced or whatever, you submit to somebody over you in the Lord, and whoever you're over submits to you, but there's not a mutual respect and submission. And yet, what's being taught and what Jesus says, in fact, Jesus even taught his disciples, you know, the way the world does things is not the way I'm teaching you to do things. There's got to be a mutual respect, a mutual helping each other, a mutual humility. And that doesn't mean there's not authority. There is authority. And he, he obviously shows it here in these next relationships that we're talking about. Now let's move, in, move on into the wives and the husbands. This one is a tough passage for wives. Because it tells wives to submit to your husbands. And even harder than submitting sometimes is what is the command to respect your husband. And how many times have we dealt with situations where the wife says that when my husband is worthy of respect, then I'll give him respect? And that's not what the command is here. It doesn't say when your husband earns your respect, then you show it to him. You've got the obligation as a wife to respect your husband, period. I don't care if your husband is a drunk. Now, you don't respect his drunkenness, obviously, but you find some things to respect him for. Why? Because it's a command of God. And we get messed up on this earning points. If you earn it, I'll give it to you. I'll treat you with love when you deserve love. All those kind of things. And, and so maybe you wives feel like, well, the husbands are getting off easy here. Well, I discovered a new principle here this year in this passage that makes me think, you know what? Husbands don't get off easy. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives. Now, that, that one ought to be pretty normal. But he doesn't stop there. Just as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way. Husbands ought to love their wives. Now, what's he saying here? Now, I've always taught this passage that says that, that, you know what, husbands, we need to show love to our wives, and wives, you need to show respect to your husbands, which is absolutely true. But he adds a whole new dimension that I hadn't seen here to us husbands. He says, husbands, our responsibility is to present our wives holy to God. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? That means you, husband, have got a responsibility to make sure your wife is doing well spiritually. You say, well, my wife is more spiritual than I am. (laughs) But you know what? I understand that totally because Gloria is more spiritual than I am. And I I can say that. Frankly, she is a more spiritual person than I am. It doesn't mean that before God I've got a responsibility to make sure she's doing well with God. Which means, first of all, I've got to be doing well with God. I can't help her if I'm not doing well. But it means also I've got to know how she's doing with God. I've got to to know if she is holy because my responsibility is to present her holy to God. Now, what does holy mean? The word holy means totally devoted. That's what the word that's translated holy means. It means totally devoted. Husbands, you've got the responsibility to make sure that your wife is totally devoted to God and all the implications that go with that. Now, do you think I've let you off the hook? Chew on that one. Because it's a whole new dimension of our responsibility in our relationship with our wives. And I guarantee you, when you start getting into this and start understanding, it's going to revolutionize your marriage, and it's going to make you closer to one another than you've ever been. Because God has an expectation that you, the man, are to lead spiritually your wife yes i don't care if she is more spiritual than you are that needs to be an upward call to you so you still can lead her well chapter 6 verse 1 children obey your parents in the lord this is right so there's a whole aspect there which means parents first of all you got a responsibility to get your parent your children to do that but you know what Every one of us are children, right? Every one of us have parents. Which means, and he goes on to say, honor your father and mother. You know what? You've got a responsibility. I've got a responsibility. Honor your parents. You say, well, my parents aren't Christians. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who your parents are, what they've done, even if they've abused you. Now, again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to solve so the horrendous nature of being abused. And I know a number of you women have been abused by your father or grandfather or whatever. It doesn't change the fact before God we are to show honor to our parents. Whatever that means for you, 
You sort it out and figure that out. And then, of course, children and, and our parents, verse 4, fathers do not exasperate your children instead of bringing them up and training the instruction of the Lord. You know what? Mothers aren't mentioned there at all. What does that mean? Does that mean us dads are supposed to raise the kids by ourselves? I hope not. <laughs> it means we've got prime responsibility to make sure it's happening. You know, you, you cannot abdicate your role as father to make sure that your children are being brought up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, the last relationship I'm going to talk to here is a tough one. It says, slaves, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Isn't it interesting that Paul did not teach against slavery? Anybody here believe in slavery today? I don't believe in slavery today. I think slavery was terrible. Why didn't Paul teach against slavery? Why did Jesus not teach against slavery? Why rather did he say, submit to your masters? Don't try to overthrow the system. Here's the reason. Because Jesus came to give us the pathway to heaven, not to a reformed society. Because Jesus knows that in this life we will never have a reformed society. But here's the power of this. We understand we live in a free society in the United States. You know what? There's a lot of places in the world that are not free. There's a lot of places in the world that, that, that there's a still a caste system in India. There's still a lot of horrendous things going on in the world. Those people do not have to have a democracy to go to heaven. They, in whatever their system they are in, the gospel can flourish in the same way it did in the first century. There was no attempt to overthrow the system. Now, I'm not saying don't exercise you. I'm, that's not, what I'm saying is that's not primarily what we are about as disciples. What we are primarily about as disciples is trying to help people get to heaven. And what he says is the way you do that is whatever you do, you do it with all of your heart. You, you don't, and, and, and of course the application for us today, thank God we don't live in a, a slave society, but we have employers. That, that sort of fits the situation for us today. Just, to, just substitute employer there and put your put and read it like that. Serve your employer wholeheartedly, as though you were serving the Lord. You see, that's the spirit that we're called to do. It's different. It's different thinking. It's not the thinking that Satan has shaped our thoughts in. 
but rather it is the most important thing is getting to heaven and taking as many people as we can with us. And, of course, he comes back in the last thing here, and he talks to the masters. He says, masters, in the same way, you need to treat your slaves with respect. But you know what? That's talking to masters who were disciples, which most of them weren't. And most of your bosses are not. And there are terrible things that go on in the jobs. There are terrible things that go on in the world. There are terrible things that go on in the families. But you know what? We have to guard our hearts. And we have to, in every situation, do the right thing. And so, you know, I've got to wrap it up here. We're out of time. We could go on. But really, what I'm trying to get you to think about is what we are in is the power of more than one. You can't do the things he's talking about by yourself. You can't serve an abusive boss by yourself. You cannot submit to an abusive husband by yourself. You can't, a lot of these situations you can't do on your own power and your own strength. We need the power of God, and we need the power of God working through one another. And there is nothing that cannot happen that God wants to happen if we all work together. If we really put our gifts together, if we work together, then we're going to see the power of more than one make an amazing difference in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of this church, in the life of the church in Los Angeles, in the life of the church in the United States, in the life of the Middle East, in the life in Central and South America, around the world, because it's the power of God which will always overcome the power of Satan. May we all rely on God and believe in the power of more than one. Thank you.